Welcome to The Upshot. I'm Leah Rose. Today, the award-winning food and agriculture writer Michael Pollan joins me to talk about his new article, The Trip Treatment, from the February 9th issue of The New Yorker. Everybody's trip is different, but the people who were grappling with death or cancer often had a kind of rehearsal of death. Michael's article takes a comprehensive look at the renaissance of psychedelic research and the scientists and doctors who are currently giving high doses of psilocybin, that's the active ingredient in magic mushrooms, to people who are dying of cancer and battling addiction. The groundbreaking research Michael writes about is in part aiming to figure out what happens to people on psychedelics and why it often only takes one trip for people to push past their fear of dying. Here's my conversation with Michael. So what did you know about psychedelics before writing this, and why were you interested in researching psychedelic therapy? I've always been interested. I mean, people know me for writing about food, but I I, I have written about other things, one of which is altered states of consciousness. Right. And I wrote a long piece uh, for Harper's Magazine in the late 90s about opium. I grew opium in my garden and had several adventures and uh, run-ins with the drug war. And I had written a a section of uh, Botany of Desires about um, cannabis. And one of the human desires that that book looks at is our desire to change consciousness, which goes really deep and, you know, you find in all human cultures and some animal cultures, too. And um, so I'd, I'd had some general interest in this, but um, didn't know much at all. I heard you on the New Yorker podcast talking about the trip treatment, about this article, um, and you called yourself spiritually retarded. <laughs> and I thought for someone who's writing about these, like, super trippy subjects, like, how could you be spiritually retarded? Uh, yeah, it's funny. I gravit- I'm i very interested in spiritual things, but I don't see myself as having that kind of head or that kind of inclination. And um, I've never been particularly religious. And um, uh, I don't think it's a part of myself that I've developed that well. But I have, on the other hand been very interested in looking at the world from the point of view of other species and very interested in our connections. I mean, I think of myself as a writer is very interested in connecting the dots. I'm very interested in looking at all different kinds of things ecologically, which is to say the connections between them, that, that the individual isn't the key unit um, and that we might think we're in charge, but in fact the plants are working on us even as we're working on them and that there's a lot of other agency in the world. Which I guess is a spiritual idea, but to me it seems like a, um, you know, a scientific idea, perhaps in need of a little more proof. But uh, so I don't know. I mean, I think a lot of, you know, my last book, Cooked, also had a spiritual component. I mean, I wrote a lot about cooking as, a, as, a, as an act that connects us to other people and connects us to nature and is, you know, a lot more elevated and even sacred compared to viewing food as fuel, um, to, to view it as communion. And um, so I guess I'm kind of, you know, spirituality sneaking up on me. <laughs> and so after writing this article and researching it and talking to all the, the top researchers who are working in the psychedelic therapy field, were you at all curious to try psychedelics yourself? Yeah, um, it definitely uh, made me curious because I talked to so many patients and they had the most amazing experiences and and they were life-changing. And then I think, well, do I want to change my life? Um, And uh, so I'm both curious and frightened of them um, because people also have these, you know, uh, grueling, um, uh, you know, trying experiences on these things. They can really bring up 
uh, trauma. They can bring up, you know, all sorts of issues. And people see scary things. And the bad trip is a, is a reality. And um, and you never know. You're always uh, tossing the dice. Uh, what what was kind of appealing about doing it this way, which is to say in a guided psychedelic trip, as these patients do, is that there's someone there with you who understands what's going on and knows exactly what to say if you get into trouble. And um, that's very different than using these drugs recreationally, as we say, um, in that you can be kind of out there on a limb by yourself uh, when bad things happen. And um, so if it were possible to to have one of these experiences in that kind of environment, which, of course, is not really possible unless you participate in one of these trials, I would be intensely interested to see what I could learn. So, yeah, I mean, I did have this mounting curiosity as I went through it. And a lot of people who have read the article have the same reaction. I'm getting a lot of, you know, emails like, can you recommend a good psychedelic therapist in the Boston area? <laughs> yeah, can you hook me up with? <laughs> yeah, and, uh, you know, I just have to say, no, I'm sorry, I can't help you. This isn't yeah. legal yet. I found it really interesting how you describe the room where the research takes place and, you know, how it was decorated. And I'm curious if you think that had any effect on the experiences that people had. Without question. I mean, one of the, the really lessons of 60s research with psychedelics is that set and setting, which is to say the, set, the, the, the physical setting and your mental set, uh, mindset, uh, have a lot to do with what will happen. And that these drugs are, they're not predictable in their effects. They're, they're unlike other kinds of drugs. Um, and that they're highly suggestible. And so, for example, if you're with a therapist who has Freudian tendencies, you will have Freudian insights. Hmm. And ditto if you have a Jungian therapist or a behavioral therapist. And um, so the, the, the environment in which you do this and the person you're with has a big effect. And so they tried to set up the room so that it was as uh, living room-like as possible and not – it didn't feel medical. It's, it didn't – even though it is it, – it was a hospital room. But there was a, a comfortable couch and there were bookshelves and on the books were, you know, books of uh, art and spirituality. And, and there was um, various spiritual tchotchkes around the room. You know, there was a Buddha and there was a ceramic mushroom. And <laughs> I thought that was so funny. It was <laughs> a little bit of a – I mean, it's kind of silly in a way. But um, – and then, you know, part of the experience too is that you're not sitting up on that couch. You're lying down. And you have you're wearing an eye shade or an eye mask, and you're listening to music on headphones. So, so like Brian Eno. Yeah, and the music's yeah, been very Ravi careful. Shankar. Pat Metheny, Ravi Shankar, yeah. um, Philip Glass. It's exactly what you would expect in every way. No, no, nothing with lyrics. No Grateful Dead. No Grateful Dead. No, 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 <laughs> I was no rock and roll. Um, there was some classical. Um, it's actually beautiful. I listened to the to the playlist while I was writing the article. It was, oh wow! It, it got me in the mood. That's as close as I got to having the experience. Can you tell us about some of those experiences that some of the patients had um, and and how they were actually able to wipe out something as big as existential panic? Yeah. Well, I focused on, you know, the drug is psilocybin that I focused on, which is the ingredient in magic mushrooms. And it is a milder psychedelic than LSD. It doesn't last quite as long. The effects are not as uh, intense. Um, but nevertheless, it's still a, a pretty um, intense experience, uh, especially at the doses that they were administering. 
Um, and these were mostly people who were who had cancer diagnoses, some of whom were dying, some of whom were, were in remission and very terrified of a recurrence. And their anxiety about their cancer or their oncoming death was paralyzing their ability to, to function in the present. And, um, and, you know, at one level, if you said to me, you know, I'm you have a terminal diagnosis, do you want a trip now? You know, it seems like the last thing you'd want to do. But some of these people were in pretty desperate straits, and this offered some relief, and they tried it. And in many cases, um, it gave them uh, incredible relief, kind of mind-blowing, because only one experience would have this effect. And what would happen to people, I mean, people had very, everybody's trip is different, um, but the people who were grappling with death or cancer often had a kind of rehearsal of death um, that was an important part of their journey. Um, some people described going up to a precipice and looking out over this great plane of consciousness, which they interpreted to mean this is life after I'm dead. This is where I will go. And somebody had an experience of um, uh, she was zipping around as if in a video game, going all over the world, all over time, and then suddenly, boom, she comes smack up against the wall of a crematorium. She wow. Said, oh, my God, this is my death. And, but she didn't have an experience of burning and, um, or pain. Uh, but then from having had this freedom to move around, she found herself going into the soil and being taken up by the roots of trees and, um, and realizing, oh, that's what will happen to me. That, that seems okay. That seems fine. Um, that's not that scary. Now, you could argue, well, that is sort of what happens <laughs> long term yeah. to us. We return to the earth and we are taken up by trees and other living things. Um, but uh, having had that experience gave her a lot of equanimity about what was, what was about to happen. Uh, other people saw their cancers. They had encounters with their cancers. This one woman who was a, she was a very kind of timid, shy person and she was paralyzed with fear. She, she had an encounter with her fear this black cloud that was somewhere in her torso, and she screamed at it, you know, um, uh, you know, fuck you, you're not going to eat me alive. And ever since, her anxiety about, I had written in the first draft, had diminished. And when the fact checker called to say, is that true? She says, no, it didn't diminish, it was eliminated. Wow. She insisted on that. Yeah, I don't worry about it anymore. That's incredible. So, you know, it, they're interesting experiences, and I don't know what to make of them in terms of their truth value. Um, people are having mystical experiences. And one question that kept bouncing around my head is, are these therapists offering uh, an illusion of immortality or, um, you know, what happens after death to, to, to very sick people? Is this, a, is this a delusion that we're trafficking? In? And who knows? I mean, I guess was the answer I usually heard. I mean, some people were like, I don't care. You know, if this gives people relief, it really doesn't matter what the truth value is of it. And I'm not sure I agree with that. Um, and other docs said, well, we really don't know what happens after you die. Um, we don't know for sure that consciousness is, is limited to human brains. It's kind of the what we what most people think, but actually, there's a there's a a group of philosophers and uh, physicists now who are raising questions about that, who who suggest consciousness may be out there, right? Like the transmission theory. Yes, and that we tune it in, right. um, that we're like a radio receiver, and, right? Um, it's it seems to me like a crazy idea, but um, you know, 
energy, gravity, these are, these are properties of the universe that we use or that influence us, and, and consciousness or information may be another one of those. And it was interesting because I've, I've thought a lot about the transmission theory and thought that, you know, maybe psychedelics do allow people to tune into that. But then when you were writing about the treatment that's coming out of London, where um, researchers are looking at brain scans while people are, people are on psychedelics... Um, and then it made me think that the experience is just something that's happening in our mm -hmm. brain. Well, that's the belief, I think, of that particular scientist. Um, Robin Carhart Harris is a science, neuroscientist, has very interesting theories of what's going on. And I was very curious to know, okay, these people are having these extraordinary experiences that are very real to them, more real than anything that's happened in their life. They'll tell you that. They don't talk about these experiences like it was a dream. You know, I mean, when we talk about our dreams or even our other kinds of drug experiences, we know to dismiss them as not true, as illusions. People who have these experience, experiences think of them as as sturdy as anything else in their life, which it is totally really changes. They reframe yeah, their lives. It reframes I mean, yeah. how they look at life. So, so Robin Carhart Harris has been administering psilocybin by injection and LSD, and then taking brain scans, putting people in a. Um, uh, fMRI machine, and also doing other kinds of uh, electrical wave scans. And what he's found is very curious um, and surprising. I, I think the general assumption among neuroscientists was that when you take a psychedelic, uh, it's exciting brain activity in that you are having all these hallucinations and, and powerful emotions, so it must be an, you know, a stimulant of some kind in certain parts of the brain. But when he first started doing this, he, he noticed that, um, in fact, it suppressed activity in a very important brain network called the default mode network. And this is a part of the brain or, or a set of structures, linked structures, that's kind of a transportation hub that links the, um, the cortex, the outer covering of the brain, which is a newer part in evolutionary terms, to deeper, older parts like the limbic system, the hippocampus, which is where a lot of memory is. Limbic system has got a lot of emotion to it, our fight or flight, all this kind of stuff. And um, this part of the brain is usually very active when you're ruminating or daydreaming or thinking about thinking or worrying about the future or the past or doing mental time travel. It's, it's what's active when you're alone and dealing with your stuff. And it goes offline. Um, and when that happens, uh, people register a loss of a sense of ego. And so the postulate is the default mode network is where the ego lives. That is the ego. That's the I that's kind of trying to call the shots. When it goes offline, some interesting things happen. Other parts of the brain start talking to each other without going through Grand Central Station. Yeah. And, um, and that may explain uh, hallucinations, which is the fact that your emotional centers, your fears, your wishes are talking directly to your visual centers and creating things for you to look at. Can you tell us a little bit about R. Gordon Wasson, who introduced magic mushrooms to the West, and about the woman who he learned about mushrooms from in yeah, Mexico? Yeah, Maria Sabina. Well, there had always been rumors that that um, Native uh, Mexicans had uh, a psychedelic drug that they used in their religious observances, and there had been tales of of these magic mushrooms that had been bouncing around ethno-botanical circles. Um, and um, uh, there was a guy named R. Gordon Wasson who was actually a banker at J.P. Morgan in New York, very upstanding uh, guy who 
was obsessed with mushrooms. He was an amateur mushroom hunter, mycologist, and he was married to a woman who was Russian, and she knew a lot about mushrooms, and Russians are passionate about mushrooms. And he invested a lot of resources tracking down these rumors, and he found uh, this woman, a curandera, it's called, it's like a shaman or a healer, who in, in southern Mexico, I think in Oaxaca, who... Um, uh, agreed to um, let him participate in a mushroom ceremony. Turns out they had been going on continually since the conquest. The uh, conquistadors had tried to suppress m- mushroom worship and um, because it was pagan, again, the same threat to the system. Um, and um, she was persuaded to administer mushrooms to him in this all-night ceremony. And he has a mind-blowing experience, and he comes back and writes an article, 15-page article in Life magazine. As a writer of long form, you know, I'm really jealous when I hear that. And my <laughs> article wasn't even 15 pages. It was like it's pretty close. Well, it's close. Yeah, it's pretty close. But his article was as long or longer <laughs> with pictures of her and him, and, um, and he describes this uh, experience he had. And it was a big article in a big magazine. This comes out in 1957. And that is really the introduction of psychedelics to the West. And um, Timothy Leary reads this article, and he's inspired to go to Mexico and try it. And that is the beginning of his work. And um, it really enters the culture, and people start going down to southern Mexico. Maria Sabina lived to regret what she had done and um, because it led to this drug tourism to Mexico and really a, a, a desecration of what she considered a sacrament. Um, and uh, to this day, there are you know, lots of Native Mexicans who wish she had never done this and, and were very angry at her for doing it. And she regretted it, too. Um, but that was Wasson's contribution. And um, uh, shortly after that article came out, too, um, Albert Hoffman, who was the scientist in Switzerland at Sandoz Chemicals, who first synthesized uh, LSD in the 30s and tried it in the 40s, um, he tried psilocybin, and he found it was kind of similar, and then he figured out what was the chemical involved and synthesized it. So he, he figured out the pure version of, of the mushroom uh, chemical, which is called psilocybin, and, um, and it is his synthesis of that that is used in the current research. They're not eating mushrooms. They're taking white pills. Okay. And why you wrote a little bit about uh, Big Pharma and how scientists, researchers don't see them interested in developing psilocybin um, because it works so well and, and you have to take it once or twice and, and you're done. Well, there are two done. reasons, yeah. I mean, the, Big Pharma likes uh, diseases for chronic conditions you have to take every day for the rest of your life. They love Lipitor. They don't even like antibiotics anymore because you only take them for five days at a time. So they're looking for um, uh, a certain kind of drug that would be very expensive and take a long time and that you can patent. You can't patent psilocybin. I mean, if, if Sandoz had a patent on its synthesis, it's, it's over. And so they don't see a way to make a lot of money on this and therefore are unlikely to develop it, um, which is a shame. Um, uh, but maybe it'll get treated like an orphan drug. There are these companies that, that you know, adopt these orphan drugs that the big pharma doesn't want. Um, or the government or private money could develop it. Um, basically, the, you know, there's, there are three steps to getting accepted as a drug. Right now, psilocybin, like LSD, like marijuana, is a Schedule I controlled substance. That's the, the most restrictive category under the Controlled Substances Act, which is our main drug law. 
and that stipulates that there is no, um, it's a highly, it's a, it's a drug of abuse, subject to abuse, and there's no accepted medical use. If they can get past, um, right now the trials I'm describing are phase two trials. Phase one, you, you just establish safety. Phase two, you have to begin to establish efficacy in a small group. Phase three is a much larger version of that. Um, you test it on many more people. And if you find that it is effective, um, uh, you then put the government in the spot of having to reschedule psilocybin uh, as a Schedule II or Schedule three drug, like um, you know, opium or opiates or Schedule II since they're used legitimately in anesthesia. Um, so that's a big step for the government to take. Um, to is that a really long process, too? Well, you know, um, it would be a few more years. Um, they're going to publish the results of the phase two trials probably in the next couple months, this spring. Um, if those results are as good as the therapists and docs have told me they are, um, there's a good chance they could get approval for phase three. The challenge will be funding it. Phase three, you need hundreds of people. Cost tens of millions of dollars probably to do a phase three trial. But there are a lot of private funders who are very interested in this work and um, would, I'm told, step up to fund it. Uh, and that research would happen at uh, a bunch of different campuses, um, including possibly UCSF. That was one of the ones in conversations. Um, uh, University of um, uh, Wisconsin and um, NYU and Hopkins and perhaps the University of New Mexico. So there's several schools interested in doing it. And in fact, there are people now training psychedelic therapists. There's a program in San Francisco that's getting started next year to train psychedelic therapists. So, you know, we may be a couple years away from having this drug in the arsenal of palliative care doctors who are treating cancer patients. It just seems like such a big subject and there's so much to write about and so many different avenues you could have gone down. How did you how did you pare it down? Well, that's even... always the challenge when you're writing one of these long things. You learn a lot more than you can use. And in the end, you know, I was looking for um, characters that were compelling. And um, I could have written about addiction, which I didn't. Um, I, t I wrote about this end-of-life anxiety trial because it's the most moving. I mean, you know, everyone is afraid of death. Um, we all have existential distress. That's their name for the condition these people have, you know, to one degree or another. And talking to people as they face death is a very uh, profound experience. And I, I focused on this one character who I never met, who died before I started this research. Uh, but I was able to recreate him on the page using his own words because he kept a, a wonderful journey of his experience, journal of his experience, and interviewing his wife. And his wife generously gave me permission to um, have access to his uh, the notes of his therapist. So I had, I had two accounts of what was happening in that room. Um, and when I read his account, I realized he was the one to organize this around and that this was the way to connect, to get people connected to the story. Um, and indeed, you learn in the first line of the story that he does eventually die. Um, so there's no suspense there. But the suspense is, how does he die? Does he die in a better way than he would have if he hadn't taken this drug? And the answer clearly for him was yes. Um, it, it made his death a much better death than it ever would have been. And um, so 
that's what moved me the most, and that's what I decided to focus on. Um, and then the science, too. I'm really interested in the neuroscience and, like, how do we explain what's going on? Um, and, you know, I really think psychedelics have the potential to do what the 60s promise was, which is unlock secrets of consciousness. Um, it may be in a different way. It may be, you know, people like Robin Carhart Harris using this new machinery. Um, but I think we're learning things about consciousness from these drugs that um, we would not know otherwise. And that's very exciting. Well, Michael Pollan, thank you so much for writing this article. And I loved it. I learned a ton. And it was one of those pieces that just stayed with me for oh, days thank you, after Leah. I read it. I really appreciate that. Thank you. The Upshot was produced by Justin Richmond at the UC Berkeley Graduate School of Journalism. Thank you to Michael Pollan for his article, The Trip Treatment, from the February 9th issue of The New Yorker. To check out past episodes of The Upshot, find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. And visit us at theupshotpod.com. And tweet us at theupshotpod. Until next time, I'm Leah Rose with The Upshot. Thank you.